Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, listeners. Uh, I'm afraid there's no rhyme again this week because we're dealing with Oliver Cromwell and he doesn't make it into the official rhyme of our monarchs because he wasn't a monarch. He was a protector. That's what he became known as. Who knows if he hadn't died relatively young, maybe he would have ended up as a king and history might have taken even more of a swerve. But no, he interrupted our stately line of monarchs and uh, really threw a massive spanner into the works. And it's very interesting, Cromwell's reputation. It swings from people who think he was absolutely fantastic to people who think he was an absolute monster. But even many of those who disapprove of him do say that perhaps it had to happen that this was a necessary reset. It made a lot of people stop and think, Okay, what is the monarchy for? What is it all about? And it also went on to the question, and it's one that we've looked at a few times through this series, of if we didn't have a monarchy, if there wasn't a king or a queen on the throne, what would be the alternative? Now, most countries now in the Western world, Europe, America, whatever, don't have royal families. A few of them do still. But the monarchs have very little actual power. They are a symbolic presence. They are a useful, neutral head of state. America has managed without a monarch ever since the United States was formed after the revolution in the late 18th century. But we often ask in this country, you know, well, if we didn't have a king, what would we have? And... The question was answered 
by Oliver Cromwell. You would have this. And really, if you look at how Cromwell behaved and what happened after he took power, it was very little different to having a king. Now, a few days before recording this episode, I went down to Westminster. I was trying to get into Westminster Abbey because I wanted to have a look around, but it was the period between Christmas and New Year and it was extraordinarily busy with tourists and you just could not get in. Instead, I went over to the Houses of Parliament, Palace of Westminster, which is right next door to the Abbey, and there are two statues there outside the Houses of Parliament. One of a monarch, Richard I, that is the only monarch outside Houses of Parliament, and the other is Oliver Cromwell who was obviously seen as being a great hero of Parliament. And I took a photograph of this statue and I posted something flippant about him on Twitter. And I got quite a lot of uh, angry people saying, what are you tweeting about this guy for? He was an absolute bastard. And I had to explain, well, I'm going to do an episode about him and uh, we shall see whether he was an absolute bastard or not. But inevitably, most of these messages were from Irish people, because in Ireland, Cromwell is a much hated figure. We'll come to see why later in the episode. And it's interesting because I think in in many ways, Cromwell represents to the Irish the English, English power, English abuse of power in Ireland. There are many top-ranking English people who've been over to Ireland and behaved pretty appallingly, but a lot of this attention seems to be sort of focused and crystallised in Cromwell. He has this statue outside the Houses of Parliament and he is seen as being this great hero of Parliament, the saviour of Parliament, who stood up to the tyranny of Charles I. And obviously the government of the United Kingdom is saying... What a great man he was, but actually that statue is fairly recent. He was argued about for so long. It was first proposed in 1856, uh, and it was another 40 years until it was actually put up in 1895. And those funds were mostly private, and a lot of the money came from the Prime Minister of the time, Lord Rosebery. But he was by no means this kind of all-purpose man of the people, this champion of democracy. He didn't want universal suffrage. He didn't want everyone to have the vote. He was very much on the side of the landed gentry. He fell out with his more radical supporters who wanted equality for all. He tried to rule through the democratic process as it stood, but he didn't want to extend it to all and sundry. And what's interesting is that, as I say, is that he ended up behaving in a very similar way to Charles I. When Parliament didn't give him what he wanted, he kicked half the government out and instated military rule. Now, he'd started out as a fairly minor politician, but it was when civil war broke out and he joined the army that he began to find his place in the world. And Winston Churchill, in his history of the English-speaking peoples, described... Cromwell's rule as being a military dictatorship, which on many levels it was. He does say that Cromwell was one of the greatest Englishmen of all time, and he praised his role in the English Civil War and the establishment of the Commonwealth, but he does accept that Cromwell was very problematic. He was a great man, but... 
And Cromwell reminds me in many ways of Simon de Montfort, who was this other great parliamentary hero, fighting for the House of Commons against King Henry III. He was also a great man, but he was a massive anti-Semite who persecuted the Jews and was quite instrumental in this movement that led to the Jews being exiled, kicked out of the country by Edward I, who was our next monarch to take the throne. And Cromwell massively persecuted the Catholics, but he also let the Jews back into Britain, having been barred for 350 years. So, contradictions and controversy. We'll come to all that, but first of all, uh, let's start with the facts. He was born in 1599, he died in 1658 at only 54 years old, and he was Lord Protector from 1653 until 1658. So most of his life happened before he took power. It was only the last five years of his life that he was pretty much sitting on the throne of Great Britain. Cromwell grew up in East Anglia, the sort of southeastern part of England, um, mostly in Cambridgeshire. He's often portrayed as being a man from a poor background, almost a peasant. He wasn't. He was a sort of stout yeoman gentleman farmer, a, a lowly gentleman farmer. He never had much money. The family had been wealthy. His grandfather had been a major landowner and the family's wealth originally came from, and we looked at this a little bit when we were talking about Henry VIII, but Oliver Cromwell's great-great-grandfather was a guy called Morgan Ap William. He was a brewer who moved from Wales to Putney and married Catherine Cromwell, the sister of Thomas Cromwell, who uh, was the sort of famous chief minister to Henry VIII. And initially, Thomas Cromwell looked after the family pretty well, giving them money and land he'd got from the dissolution of the monasteries. So the family took the Cromwell name, and for a long while they were this rich and powerful family. But from Oliver Cromwell's grandfather onwards, the, the family sort of uh, diminished. And Oliver Cromwell's father, not being the oldest brother of the family, didn't inherit that much. Cromwell's parents had ten children, and he was the fifth child, but he was the only boy to survive infancy. Not a great deal is known about his early life. It would have been the quite ordinary life of one of these, let's say, minor landed gentry. He went to study at Cambridge University at Sydney Sussex College, which was a fairly new college with a very strong Puritan ethos. But when his father died in 1617, he left university and went back home in order to take charge of the house and the land. He married a woman called Elizabeth Bouchier or Boucher or Bircher. Uh, they had nine children and the oldest surviving boy was Richard, who we shall see later uh, went on to rule the country after Oliver's death. Now Cromwell is obviously famous for being a Puritan and for bringing in this Puritan regime, but it seems that when he was young he wasn't particularly religious. Uh, he wasn't a fanatical Puritan. He would probably had much the same views as everyone else and was perhaps even a little bit unsure about, you know, am I a Catholic? Am I a Protestant? I'm just a Christian. I'm just going to get on with my life. Uh, but it seems that 
during the late 1620s uh, and into the 1630s, he had some kind of a mental breakdown, um, whether it was stress, mental health problems, depression. We're not quite sure because these are quite modern terms and this is a sort of a modern way of looking at it. But he was treated for various ailments, including one that was called in Latin valde melancholicus, melancholy, depression. And he was treated by a Swiss-born doctor in London, Theodore de Mayerne. So it seems probably that he had some kind of breakdown and suffered heavily from depression. And it was kind of returned a few times through his life. But it seems that at this time, he also developed more of a sort of religious fervour, that perhaps he used prayer, used a connection to God, in his mind at least, to pull himself out of this depression. And he thanked God for helping him to recover. And after this point, through his life, he became more and more fanatically religious. And he came to more and more believe that everything that had gone well for him was because of God and that he was God's chosen man. Part of his breakdown might have been exacerbated when in 1629 he got involved in a land dispute amongst the gentry of Huntingdon where he was living. I think this was uh, an area of land was being drained so it could be used for farmland and they were using local taxes and local funds to do it but then it transpired that this land wasn't going to be for the use of all the people it was going to be for the use of a local wealthy landowner to use for his own um, farming for agriculture. This has been this ongoing, long-running problem in England of, of enclosures, of common land being parceled up and sold off. It was being taken over by flocks of sheep and, and larger agriculture. And it seems that Cromwell got caught up in this. It became quite a hot topic, a difficult episode in his life. And it resulted in him being called before the Privy Council to answer for himself. And then he sold most of his properties in Huntington and moved to a nearby town of St Ives. Now, whether that was because he'd fallen out with his neighbours, I don't know. I can't be expected to know everything. But this was a sort of step down for the Cromwells. And all of this seems it had a big impact on his mental health. He now had smaller property, smaller land, a smaller farm. He was kind of eking things out, selling eggs and wool. So this was when Cromwell was having his health problems, his depression. But as I say, when he came out the other side, he became a sort of born-again Christian. The light of Puritanism started to burn brightly in his heart. And he started to write letters to his family that were full of this sort of biblical imagery, describing himself as having been the chief of sinners, but now he had turned his life around. And he started getting involved in this growing, more extreme Puritan feeling in the country. This idea that the Reformation had not gone far enough, that much of England was still living in sin, like Cromwell had been, and that the Catholic beliefs and practices should be fully purged from the church. 
And it got so bad for Cromwell that in 1634 he tried to emigrate to one of these Puritan colonies in northeast America, to New England. Um, he wanted to go to what became the Connecticut colony. But by this time in his life, which I'll come on to in a moment, he was a member of Parliament and the government stopped him from leaving the country. But luckily for Cromwell, things took a turn for the better. He inherited from an uncle in Ely the job of tithe collector for Ely Cathedral. This is a sort of religious tax um, that the locals have to pay in um, to keep the church going and to pay for the, the priests or whatever. Uh, but it also came with a fee um, and he also took over some property of his uncles. So he became a tax collector and a landlord. So he now had, uh, once again, a fairly respectable income. So, as I said, in 1628, Cromwell had become a politician. He became the Member of Parliament for Huntingdon. And it seems at the time that you kind of needed the backing of some some wealthy people to put you there. And that once you were there, you would in some ways be their mouthpiece, um, assuring that their interests were looked after. Um, and he was a client of the Montague family. But this was at the time when Parliament and Charles I were really falling out with each other. And Cromwell didn't really have much time to make his mark. Um, in fact, he made very little impression. The parliamentary records have him down as only making one speech. It wasn't very well received, uh, but that was about it because he was only there in Parliament for a year because this was the point when Charles I decided that he was fed up with Parliament for not giving him everything he wanted, for not letting him get his way, for not raising enough taxes for him to properly run his household. And he dissolved Parliament and ruled the country for the next 11 years without any parliament at all. So it was a bad time for Cromwell to get into politics. He was there in the House of Commons for a year, and then for the next 11 years, there was no parliament at all. Now, this state of affairs carried on until 1640, when Charles fell out with the Scots. The Scots, by this point, were heavily Protestant, much more extreme than the English. They wanted to get rid of priests altogether and make the church much more egalitarian. Charles tried to impose on them the English way of doing things, the English prayer book, Anglicanism, the Church of England, and the Scots were having none of it. And this led to war between England and Scotland, which became known as the Bishop's War. The Scots invaded northern England, at which point Charles hastily reconvened Parliament and said to them, all right, chaps, welcome back. Can you raise some taxes for me to go and fight the Scots? Uh, and after 11 years of being out in the wilderness, Parliament said, no, we're not going to do that. You've got to be a bit nicer to us. And Charles's response was his kind of default mode. He shut Parliament down again. And that became known as the Short Parliament. But Cromwell was briefly back in Parliament's member for Cambridge. But this time, he only lasted three weeks. And that was the end of the short parliament. But Cromwell knew that change was in the air, that this state of affairs could not carry on. And he moved his family from Ely to London in 1640, perhaps to be closer to the seat of power, closer to where things were going on. Charles realised he couldn't just keep shutting down parliament. The only way he could properly raise taxes was through parliament. 
This is why these monarchs always had to keep on the side of Parliament, because one of the things that had been agreed hundreds of years before was that only Parliament could raise taxes. Charles had been trying to raise money through other means. He'd come up with this thing called a ship tax, which is some ancient tax that the men in his court kind of dug up and said, well, you could try this, Charles, which is that ports and coastal areas were supposed to pay money to the king in order for the king to maintain a navy. This was extremely unpopular and and Cromwell had been involved with some of the locals in East Anglia before he moved to London, uh, helping them fight this tax. So Charles tried to impose this ship tax and various other ancient and forgotten taxes that he could theoretically call upon. But this just made people angrier and angrier. And so he had to recall Parliament. Again, uh, Cromwell is back there as the member for Cambridge. And he is now getting involved with a lot of religious and political extremists, these various movements that are going on. And there was no way that Parliament was going to agree with anything that Charles wanted. And they were pretty much at loggerheads. And it seemed to be, for everybody involved, that the only sensible solution was to go to war. Now, I think a lot of people, if you ask them who started the English Civil War, would say that Parliament declared war on King Charles. But actually... It was the other way round. Charles left London, set himself up in Oxford, raised an army and sent it to attack his own government. Now, before this point, Cromwell's only military experience had been in his local county militia. But when the war started, he went to Cambridge, where a lot of silver plate had been collected from the colleges there. And it was meant for the king to fund his royalist forces. But Cromwell stepped in and seized it for the parliamentarians and used the money to set up his own cavalry regiment. And he was involved in various actions in East Anglia, uh, most notably the Battle of Gainsborough in 1643. Now, by the time of the Battle of Marston Moor in July of the following year, Cromwell had risen to the rank of Lieutenant General of Horse, which means that he was second in command of the cavalry. The overall commanders of the Royalist Army were Lord Fairfax and Edward Montague, the Earl of Manchester. But as I say, Cromwell was a lieutenant general, so it was clear that he was already a very skilled soldier. He had finally, at this reasonably late point in his life, realised what he was good at, and that was being a military commander. He instilled great discipline and loyalty in his men, And this was a very important factor because the royalist troops tended to be quite undisciplined, charging about trying to gain personal glory for themselves. But Cromwell was organised and was taking the first steps in creating a much more modern-looking military. And Cromwell's cavalry at the Battle of Moor played a decisive role in defeating the Royalists. Uh, They managed to get round the army and attack Charles's infantry from the rear, which led to the collapse of the Royalist troops and parliamentarian victory. The Battle of Marston Moor secured the north of England for the parliamentarians, but it was not quite decisive enough to completely stop Royalist resistance. At the next big battle, the Battle of Newbury, Manchester cocked up, really. He let the king's army get away and Cromwell had a massive row with him. 
um, accusing him of not really being behind the war and possibly Manchester wasn't. This was a civil war. This was families against families, brothers against brothers, depending on which side you supported. And it was hard for people to say definitely, no, I'm completely against the king. I want to crush him into the dirt. But Cromwell was fired up with his Puritan zeal. And as far as he was concerned, Manchester was a useless toff. And Manchester accused him of recruiting men of low birth as officers in the army. Uh, to which Cromwell replied, if you choose godly, honest men to be captains of horse, honest men will follow them. I would rather have a plain russet-coated captain who knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. So you can see there this suspicion on Cromwell's part of any of the aristocracy really properly being behind the parliamentary cause properly being Puritan enough, not still harbouring Catholic tastes and a, and a sort of deep-seated respect for the monarchy. Cromwell was the new man. This was this new breed of middle-class, middle England who didn't like these minor aristocrats. But one of the knock-on effects of the lack of parliamentary success at Marston Moor was that Parliament passed a new law called the Self-Denying Ordinance in 1645, which forced members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, such as Manchester, to choose between whether they would remain in Parliament or remain in the army. The idea was that you couldn't do both. You had to make your choice. And the hope behind this was that the army would be properly run by men who wanted victory and were firmly behind that. And all of the politicians chose to give up their positions in the army, to no longer be part of the military. All except for one, Oliver Cromwell, who was allowed to stay in Parliament and the army. By this point... They had obviously realised that he was the man who was going to win the war for them. And he set about changing the very nature of the army. He was modernising it. He was making it a professional unit. Up to this point, the army had been made up of, of local militias who would fight in their local area. Uh, but then, if asked to go to battle on the other side of the country, would not go. But the army was remodelled. It, this was the new modelled army. It was a while before it actually became called the new model army. It wasn't called that at the time. But it became this organised professional fighting force and a national army. No matter where you were from, you joined the army and you were expected to go wherever the army went. And you would be fed and given a roof over your head where possible. And you would be paid. And part of this process was also consolidating a uniform look for the army. The most important regiment were the cavalry, the horse, and they wore these breastplates uh, front and back over a buff leather coat, which gave them some protection against sword cuts. And they normally wore the famous lobster-tailed pot helmet with the three-barred visor. The cavalry becomes known as the Ironsides. Now, I've been trying to get to the bottom of where this name comes from. The famous cavalier, Charles's nephew, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, either called Cromwell or the cavalry 
Ironsides. I mean, it makes more sense that it was the cavalry because they had this armour on. But whichever way round it happened, the cavalry became known as Ironsides and Cromwell became known as Old Ironsides. And his cavalry was, as I say, much better disciplined than the royalists. The royalists under Prince Rupert would charge into battle and then once they'd routed a part of the parliamentarian army, they'd go chasing off after them and often go for miles. But Cromwell said, no, you're going to stick together. They rode in very tight formation, almost knee to knee, and they were under strict instructions not to go chasing anybody off the battlefield. So there was the normal cavalry armed with swords, but there were also dragoons that were mounted infantry and they would ride to where they were needed on the battlefield and dismount and fight. There were also uh, musketeers and then there was the great wodge of foot soldiers. And these foot regiments were provided with red coats because red was the cheapest dye that they could get hold of. So all their clothing was dyed red. And the pikemen, who were, who were very important in all this, um, wore a pot helmet. Again, um, these back and breastplates over a buff coat. And they carried 16 foot long pikes, which is enormously long and enormously heavy. So these pikemen are kind of the backbone of the army, carrying these massively long pikes. But they were always being disciplined for for like chopping the ends off and making them a bit shorter and easier to carry because if you're moving from one part of the country to another to go to another battle you've basically got to march carrying all your gear your armor and these huge long pikes so the musketeers would get in amongst the pikemen would fire at the enemy as the pikes are protecting them and if the, the enemy get too close the musketeers are forced to use their muskets as clubs uh, they did carry short swords, but they were often completely ruined and blunt from, uh, well, because the soldiers used them to cut firewood. And the final part of the army would be your artillery. So this professional, well-organised, well-disciplined army makes a huge difference. And at the Battle of Naseby in 1645, with Cromwell now even higher up in charge, the new model army smashed the king's main army to pieces. And this was to be the last major battle of the first English Civil War. And the Royalists lost all their artillery, their equipment, their stores, along with all of Charles's personal baggage and equipment and his private papers, which included letters that revealed that he was trying to build an alliance with Irish Catholics and to bring them into the war on his side to fight this new army, to fight the new Protestants, the Puritans. And he was also planning to hire foreign mercenaries and Parliament published a pamphlet called The King's Cabinet Opened, which spelled out these secret plans of Charles, which set back his course massively. It's quite interesting, actually, that it would have been pretty difficult for the ordinary people of England to really know what was going on in a civil war being fought all around the country. But this is possibly the first war in which newspapers were reasonably well distributed and available and people were literate enough to read them. So information was getting out there and, and this was, as I say, perhaps the first media war. 
So the Battle of Naseby and the revelation in these letters was very much the turning point for the uh, king and his army. There was some mopping up to do, some final battles. Cromwell besieged um, a big Catholic fortress known as Basing House, uh, and he was then accused of killing a hundred out of the three hundred men who'd been defending the place. They surrendered, and he executed many of them, which didn't go down very well. But Charles knew that things were over for him. The Scots had entered the war on Cromwell's side and were coming down from the north. And Charles surrendered to them, perhaps hoping that he could persuade them to switch to his cause, or at least to keep him out of the hands of Cromwell. But the Scots decided to try and keep him with Cromwell, and they essentially ransomed Charles to them. Uh, Cromwell had to pay to get him. So this meant that Charles was effectively dethroned, Parliament was in control, and indeed Cromwell was in control. Uh, but he suffered from one of his illnesses, which kept him out of politics for, for more than a month. And when he recovered and, and came back into Parliament, he, he found out that it was in disarray. Nobody could agree on what to do with the king. Most people in Parliament wanted to pay off the Scots army and get them out of Northern England. They wanted to disband the new model army, because they saw this as something of a threat, that if the army in its own right got too much power, they might decide they wanted to run the place. I think this is one of the reasons why the, the England hadn't had a standing army up to this point, because there was this fear that the army becomes its own force, its own power. And the new model army is quite radical. It's obviously anti-royalist, but it's, it's got a strong Puritan element and it's got a strong egalitarian element of these soldiers saying, look, we've, we've helped you get rid of a king here. We should have some power in this country. And the most famous of these factions were the Levellers. Uh, the Levellers had been a movement that started uh, when the enclosures were happening and they'd been local rural types who would tear down the new fences and hedges that the landowners were putting up to control these new enclosures. So it wasn't so much levelling out society, although that became part of it, it was levelling out the countryside. They said, look, we've gone this far, we've got to push things further. And the army is pretty uh, restive at this point because they haven't been paid. This is a problem with having a standing army. You've got to feed them, you've got to clothe them, and you've got to pay them. And Cromwell, like many kings before him, had not been paying them properly. They were all owed a lot of money, which put the soldiers in a difficult position because if they do disband, then they're not in a very good place to try and get their back pay but if they stick together as a military unit then they have some authority so parliament really doesn't know what to do with them so we now have kind of three factions in the country you've got the pro-royalists you've got parliament and you've got the army and even though Cromwell had been in charge of the army he is now mainly concerned with government matters at this point the army take matters into their own hands and they send a junior officer, a cornet called George Joyce, uh, with a troop of 500 men to capture Charles, where he's being held in custody by Parliament. And they turn up and say, all right, Charles, you're coming with me. 
And Charles says, by what authority? And Joyce nods to the 500 men. And Charles goes quietly. So Charles is now in the hands of the army. So Cromwell can now have some one-to-one discussions with King Charles about what he would accept if he was put back on the throne. What restraints would he accept on his power? And Cromwell's slightly stuck in the middle here. He's got radical elements pushing for the complete removal of Charles and giving the vote to ordinary men. I was about to say men and women, but let's face it, it's men. And we have the growth of these various radical political elements. And they're all infighting and having a go at each other. The levellers even split. There was a more radical movement called the Diggers, who thought the levellers weren't going far enough. And the Diggers were so known because they'd started to farm on this enclosed land that had been stolen by the landlords. And in the midst of all this argument, King Charles slips away. He manages to escape. He'd got it into his head that the governor of the Isle of Wight was sympathetic to his cause. And so he rushed off there. But he was wrong. And the governor, Colonel Robert Hammond, captured Charles and locked him up in Carisbrook Castle and told Parliament that he had Charles in his custody. But this was enough for the Royalists to rise up again in 1648 and it kicked off the Second English Civil War. Now the Scots had become quite pissed off with the way that the King had been treated by Cromwell. They had felt that while they didn't particularly like Charles, he was the King and should be allowed to remain so. And they did a deal with Charles and switched sides again, once more invading the north of England, but this time supporting the Royalists against Cromwell. It looked like perhaps things might just swing in Charles's favour. There were various uprisings around the country, but the new model army was still standing and they went in ruthlessly all round. The Scots were defeated decisively at the Battle of Preston. And at this point, the Royalists had no chance of winning the war. And it was at the Battle of Preston that Oliver Cromwell was the supreme commander of the New Model Army for the first time. And he managed to win that battle with very few casualties on his side, but very heavy casualties on the Scottish side. And now Cromwell starts giving these heavily religious speeches full of Bible quotes about being, as I said before, God's chosen man. The Battle of Preston proved it. He was doing God's work. And it seems that he was more driven at this point by faith than by politics. He didn't particularly want to give everyone the vote. He didn't want to make the levellers and the diggers more powerful. He didn't want to give the army more power. But he did want Puritanism to really take hold and an extreme form of Puritanism. Parliament is still worried about the army and they're still worried about Cromwell. And here he is, supreme leader of the army. So what does Cromwell do? Well, he sends Colonel Thomas Pride into Parliament to forcibly remove anybody in the government who didn't support the powerful men in the new model army known as the grandees and this left only a tiny number of members of parliament uh, sitting and they became known as the rump parliament and they all agreed that charles should be tried for treason 
Cromwell says, yes, this is what we have to do. It's the only way to end these civil wars. As long as Charles is, is free and on the loose, people will keep rising in his support. And in fact, what we need to do is execute him, get rid of him altogether, chop the head off the monarchy. Even then, even with his rump parliament, people were quite unsure about this. Was this the right thing to do? And in the end, Cromwell himself said, look, for God's sake, let's just do this. And he signs his signature to this piece of paper saying, get rid of the man. And Charles was executed on the 30th of January, 1649. At which point a republic was declared and was called the Commonwealth of England. Royalist support hadn't completely disappeared. The Royalists had regrouped in Ireland, where they signed a treaty with the Irish Confederate Catholics. So they were using religion. They were saying, look, Cromwell and the English Parliament, they've killed the king. They'll come for you next. They are Puritans. They hate Catholics. Cromwell knows about this. First of all, he has to deal with some leveller mutinies within the English army. As we've seen before, the levellers are much more radical. They don't want just the landowners to have a vote. And they are a strong force within the army. So Cromwell has to use his own army to fight itself. But he puts down mutinies in Andover and Burford. He executes the leaders and then sets off for Ireland. And this is where he massively blots his copybook. Cromwell hated the Irish. He hated them because they were Catholic. And he hated them because they were Irish. And he hadn't forgiven them for when they had risen up against the English Let's face it, English colonists who were there, the local Irish had rebelled in 1641. And whilst it started as a peaceful rebellion, it quickly descended into violence. And there were massacres of English and Scottish Protestant settlers. And Cromwell hadn't forgotten this and used it partly as an excuse to take his army over there but also to put down this new uprising where the Irish are in league with the Royalists. And Cromwell went in hard. It was brutal and ruthless. Uh, it started when he besieged the towns of Drogheda and Wexford. At the siege of Drogheda in 1649, his troops killed over 3,000 people after the town's capture. A lot of them were Royalist soldiers, a lot of them were townsmen carrying arms, but civilians were massacred as well. Cromwell was undaunted. He had God on his side, after all, and he said, I am persuaded that this is a righteous judgment of God upon these barbarous wretches who have imbrued their hands in so much innocent blood, and that it will tend to prevent the effusion of blood for the future, which are satisfactory grounds for such actions which otherwise cannot but work remorse and regret. In other words, punish them heavily now so that they won't ever do this again. And as we've seen over and over in history and over and over in Irish history, this approach does not work. A similar thing happened at the siege of Wexford. His soldiers broke into the town and again killed over 3,000 people and burnt much of the town to the ground. But he used these fights with the Catholics in Ireland to persuade any Protestant royalist troops to change sides 
and fight with him against the Irish. And it is for these actions that Oliver Cromwell is remembered in Ireland and has never been forgiven. I mean, it's true that in England he had behaved equally ruthlessly, such as at the siege of Basing House. And he had behaved similarly in Scotland, but he did go a lot further in Ireland, it has to be said. Because it didn't end with this brief war, Cromwell was determined to make Ireland Protestant and subservient to his rule. He pushed forward the process of colonisation, confiscating land from the Irish and giving it to the English. There were mass evictions, killings and over 50,000 men, women and children were deported as prisoners of war and sent to Bermuda and Barbados uh, as indentured servants, which is kind of one step up from being slaves. Admittedly, this was carried out under the command of other generals after Cromwell had left, but he was still the ultimate man in charge. He had left Ireland because the Scots were invading again in 1650. They had proclaimed Charles I's son, Charles II, as king and were backing him against English Parliament. That the invasion came to nothing. Cromwell smashed the main Scottish army at the Battle of Dunbar. It was such an overwhelming victory that Cromwell again gave one of his religious pronouncements. He said it was a high act of the Lord's providence to us, one of the most signal mercies God hath done for England and his people. But like many monarchs before him, when he tried to press on and take the war into Scotland, he got bogged down there. At which point, Charles II tried to invade England with the help of the Scots. He landed in England, south of Cromwell, south of Scotland. But as Charles led his invading army towards London, Cromwell came rampaging down from Scotland, smashed the Royalist army to pieces at the Battle of Worcester. Charles II only just escaped and managed to get away to the continent, where he remained until 1660. Cromwell left his army in Scotland under the generalship of uh, George Monk. He sacked Dundee, killing again about a thousand people. But, as I say, Cromwell is not remembered in the same way in Scotland as he is in Ireland. And Cromwell gets back to London, where he's still got this rump parliament, and he tries to sort things out. But it's a mess. He's dealing with all these different political movements. He's also dealing with all these religious movements. It's, it's crazy. The number of competing Puritan factions is off the scale. You've got the fifth monarchists. You've got the Baptists. You've got the Anabaptists. You've got the Brownists, um, followers of this guy Brown. And most of the Puritans on the Mayflower were Brownists. You've got Barrowists follow a guy called Barrow. Then you've got the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, not to mention your political movements like the Levellers and the Diggers. But one interesting thing about this is, is that quite a lot of these Puritan sects um, are kind of um, millennialists. Um, this idea that we see a lot in, in America under the sort of um, the evangelical movement, the, the people waiting for the rapture. The second coming of Christ is imminent and that 
the people who are worshipping him in the proper way will be saved and taken up to heaven. And all the other people, including the Christians who don't worship him in the proper way, will all go to hell. And that this is about to happen. And a lot of these movements had seen that the conditions were right in the world. That these biblical prophecies from, from Daniel and from Revelations were all in place. And that Cromwell's victory had been part of this. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that Cromwell allowed the Jews back into England, which he did, partly because he saw that economically they were useful. Some wealthy Jewish merchants and businessmen in the Low Countries had been helping the Dutch with their trade, and the Dutch were becoming increasingly wealthy and powerful. Cromwell wanted some of their expertise, but he was also caught up with some of these second coming ideologies. And one of the things that needed to happen to make these prophecies come true was that the Jews would need to be converted to Christianity. So part of his reason for allowing the Jews back into England was so that he could try to make them all into good Christians. This is the same as these American evangelical movements, how these extreme Christians massively support Israel because they see it as part of the prophecies that the Jews need to be in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. This is part of the prerequisites you need for the second coming to happen. So, I mean, it's all very complicated and, quite frankly, ridiculous. But there you go. Now, I've jumped ahead slightly there. The resettlement of the Jews didn't happen until 1655-1656. First of all, we've got Cromwell returning from his Scottish wars to find that the rump parliament is still sitting and still endlessly debating what to do next. Cromwell loses it. He rounds up 40 musketeers and comes storming into Parliament, exactly as King Charles I had done 10 years earlier, sparking the First English Civil War. But things went better for Cromwell. He commanded the Speaker to leave the chair and accused members of Parliament of being variously whoremongers, cheats and drunkards. You have sat too long for any good you have been doing lately. You are no Parliament. I say you are no Parliament. I will put an end to your sitting. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. The story goes that he then grabbed the ceremonial mace, the symbol of Parliament's power, and demanded that the bauble be taken away. He called in his troops, cleared the chamber, locked up the doors and returned to Whitehall. Instead of being punished or starting another civil war, Cromwell managed to cobble together some form of new Parliament who made him Lord Protector for life. Because it seems that the government, even though they got rid of the monarchy, still liked the idea of having a strong man in charge. There were movements to make Cromwell king, but he turned it down. Even though he did appoint his son to be his successor and very much ruled in the style of a monarch. He was even addressed as Your Highness. And the big man starts trying to sort out all of these various competing religious and political factions by creating a bewildering number of different parliaments that don't work. And I'll, and I'll try and make sense of that with my guest. So now the king is gone and we have a good Protestant dressed all in black on the throne. And the Puritans all round the country must have raised a glass and toasted him. Oh, no, I hear you cry. They wouldn't have done that. The Puritans banned drinking. Well, they didn't, actually. 
They banned almost everything else that was fun. Singing, dancing, sport, maypoles, parties, feast days, Christmas, adultery. But whilst they disapproved of drunkenness, they didn't ban drinking. The basic ethos of the Puritan movement is that if it's not in the Bible, it's not part of being a Christian. There's no Pope in the Bible. There's no transubstantiation. There aren't all these Catholic rituals. But there is booze. Christ approved of drinking or he wouldn't have turned water into wine. Therefore, booze is allowed. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more about Puritanism during the interregnum in the next episode. So I won't go into it in any detail here. Suffice to say, it was not popular. Now, you'd think Cromwell had enough on his plate. But not long after he had become protector, England decides to go to war against the Dutch uh, in what became known as the First Anglo-Dutch War. This was pretty much a trade war, but carried out as an actual war, mainly in the Channel and the North Sea, ships fighting each other. But it also spread as far as the Persian Gulf and out to the colonies in America. Uh, That seemed to be a big part of it, is fighting over the control of these colonies. And it was now that the English seized Jamaica from the Spanish, having failed to take Hispaniola. But Parliament seems to be mainly concerned that the Dutch are becoming too rich and powerful and they're trying to keep them down. It also perhaps helped Cromwell to say, look, we should unite against this common enemy, those wicked Dutch. The war comes to nothing, though, and in the end, a peace treaty is signed. But we're really starting to get into the era when these colonial powers are fighting each other on the other side of the world. But back at home, Cromwell was still coming up with all these schemes on how to restructure the ruling of the country and to push forward his Puritan reforms. And at one point, he even went so far as to essentially set up a military government where he put these major generals in charge in all the different regions of England, which uh, didn't go down well. It's not a good look to start putting the army in charge of running the country. That system lasted about as long as the various other different types of parliament that they experimented with. And Cromwell was still experimenting with all this when he became ill quite suddenly and died not long after. They reckon it was probably a combination of malaria and some kind of kidney disease. But he was suddenly struck by this fever. And some people suggest that he turned down the only known treatment for malaria, which was quinine, because it had been discovered by Catholics, by the Jesuit missionaries. I'm not sure how true that is, but uh, it's the sort of thing he might have done. It's a bit like the Jehovah's Witnesses not accepting hospital treatment uh, and just saying we have to go along with whatever God's will is. So Cromwell is dying and despite the fact that he's not a king, he decides that his son should take over on his death. His son Richard is made Lord Protector, but the army don't like him, Parliament don't like him, he doesn't really like being in charge and he doesn't last long. Although he did escape in many ways. He escaped from the stress and the hardship and the danger of being at the heart of things. And he went on to live a very long and seemingly happy life. So hats off to Richard. But what happens now? Cromwell's gone. His son's gone. Who's in charge? It seems they couldn't all just get together and agree and say, look, why not let Parliament run things? 
And in the end, George Monk, the guy in charge of the army, marches on London, restores Parliament and oversees a process of making everyone agree that they will restore the monarchy. It seemed to be the best way to avoid another civil war, to avoid the country falling into chaos, was to bring the Stuarts back. And Charles II is invited back to England. Cromwell was buried in Westminster Abbey in 1661. But when Charles II took the throne, they dug up Cromwell's body and hung it in irons. It was then taken down and beheaded. The body was thrown into a pit, his head was stuck on a pike and displayed outside Westminster Hall, the seat of government, until 1685. So it was there for about 30 years. Before the pike broke and the thing fell down, a guard on duty at Westminster stuffed the head up his coat and took it home. Uh, And it passed through several hands over the years, although nobody can quite say conclusively that the head that was passed around and sold by these various people definitely was Cromwell's head, but everyone believed that it was. Um, At one point, it came under the ownership of two brothers who thought they could make a lot of money displaying it as a sort of, uh, well, a bit like sort of Madame Tussauds, I suppose, except this really was the actual head. They built a special exhibition place to put it on show and they hoped to make vast sums of money. Nobody was that interested. They went bust and both of them died under mysterious circumstances, leading to this myth that the head was cursed. Eventually, it ended up back at his old college in Cambridge, Sydney Sussex College, where it was finally laid to rest and buried, but buried in secret. Nobody knows exactly where it's buried so that nobody can go and dig it up again. So that's the end of Cromwell. It is complicated, the various religious and political factions. So I hope I can make some sense of that with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Healy, who will be joining me and you after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Now, my guest on this episode is Dr. Jonathan Healy, who is Associate Professor in Social History at the University of Oxford and author of The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England. So, welcome, Jonathan. And tell me, 
revolutionary England is that is that just the English Civil War and Cromwell? No, it's a it's a history of the whole 17th century um, in, in which I sort of argue that there's a lot of revolutionary stuff going on, um, and you know there's political revolutions such as what happens in the middle of the 17th century um, and in the Glorious Revolution 1688 as well. Um, but also it's a time of kind of revolutionary ferment when um, people are experiencing politics, experiencing um, social life in, in new and revolutionary ways. So they're reading a lot more. Um, there's a lot of kind of deep changes in society um, and things like that. But of course, the centrepiece, you're absolutely right, is this sort of middle period where there's a, a civil war and a, the monarchy is torn down, the king gets his head cut off and then of course you get a republic for 11 years afterwards it, it seems to me that he very quickly started to behave very much like charles once he took power is that fair to say or not in some ways yes in the sense that he becomes a single person ruler which was very much the kind of assumption at that time that that's that that's what there would be in in the english constitution uh, at least um but when cromwell was offered the crown in 1657 he was offered it by parliament so it's a different um, intellectual basis for um, single person rule in that Charles thought that his power came from God whereas Cromwell explicitly the power comes from the people so he is definitely you know he is definitely a bit monarchical by the end um, by by 1657 at the very at the very latest but it's a different kind of monarchy. And I think those sort of finer points would probably have been um, more obvious to people uh, in the 17th century than necessarily they are to us today. Why did he turn it down? I mean, this is one of those kind of age-old historiographical um, <laughs> questions, and it's it's very, very difficult to find out. I remember writing a, an essay about this um, as an undergraduate, and I argued um, that it was because he realised that the army, where his support came from, were never going to support him, and, and therefore he felt he couldn't. And my, my tutor sort of wrote on it, and said, this is a brilliant essay, completely wrong, but a great <laughs> essay anyway. Um, and the, the sort of counterpoint to that is that essentially when he's offered the crown he's he's offered it with this uh constitution with it um called the humble petition and advice um which is equally annoying to the army the army hate that as well um because it overturns the constitution that they had given to um to cromwell the um instrument of government and cromwell takes that constitution so he's you know he's saying to the army well screw you i'm i'm not going to stick with your constitution i'm going to take this new civilian constitution um so they are still pretty angry with him and he then fires a load of leading generals so it doesn't seem to be the case that he refuses the crown because he doesn't want to face down the army because he does face down the army um so the sort of the consensus now i think is that basically there were kind of pretty sound biblical reasons for it he thought that god had providentially thrown down monarchy god had said that uh, monarchy was a bad thing and Cromwell didn't want to um, pick it up again. He, he, he thought it was something um, which um, God had declared against and therefore Cromwell didn't want to go against God. So there's a slight kind of irony in the end, which is that you've got all these MPs in Parliament and what they want to do is they want to create a monarchy which comes out of parliamentary sovereignty, which comes from the people. Um, and Cromwell, who of course had just fought a war against an absolutist monarch who thinks that they got their power from God, um, then turns around and says, well, no, God says he's against monarchy. So you can't have your, your your popular monarchy you're going to have a kind of you know a providential republics it's all very knotty and it doesn't it doesn't fit very neatly into our own um, sort of views of how people should act as, as politicians um, but i think it's to go back to your original question i think it's because he does genuinely believe that monarchy is frowned upon by god 
But then he did get his son to take over. Yeah, I mean, that is very, very weird. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, you know, he's clearly kind of edging towards some sort of hereditary rulership. And I I suppose the model might well be the Netherlands at this point, where there's this sort of balance between this representative institution and a, a family of kind of leaders who are not called monarchs, but they're a bit like monarchs um, and this is the the orange family um, and their hereditary as well and so i think he's possibly leaning towards towards those um he's also probably because he he gets he gets sick quite quickly in 1658 and death comes quite quickly to him there's probably an element of of, of oh you know what on earth are we going to do we, mm. we don't have a, a kind of established system. We we can't really have a general election to, to to elect the head of state. I mean, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? You know, who would do that? Um, so it's sort of it's sort of almost like, oh, we need a solution quickly. Um, this is the tried and tested one. Let's give it to Richard. I've always thought that there were some parallels between Cromwell refusing to be king and Caesar refusing to be emperor of Rome, because both of them, despite turning down this kind of promotion did pass on power to their sons. But it has to be said, Richard was no Augustus, was he? No. I like Richard. I, I think Richard is a really nice guy. He gets on very, very well with um, with royalists, former royalists. He gets on very well with, with Parliament. Um, but unfortunately, the, he doesn't have the respect of the army. And, and, and in 1658, when his father, Oliver, died, the army who have been out on their, you know, been uh, forced aside in 1657, think, well, brilliant, great opportunity to to get back to, you know, a kind of army type mm-hmm. constitution. And they just, you know, they just oust Richard because because he doesn't have that support from the army. At least Oliver had that sort of, you know, that history with the army. They would fought in battles with him. They would have been comrades in arms. Um, but I like Richard. I, and, and, you know, until Queen Elizabeth II, he was our longest living head of state which is an incredible fact really i know i mean he was nearly 90 wasn't he yeah 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 and he Um, just you know i mean he he was in debt so he had to flee for a bit and then he ended up just living in hertfordshire and you know living out a retirement and apparently he had a few bits and bobs from some of the sort of you know trappings of of the protectorship and when when people came around he'd sort of get them out and sort of say oh you know to be head of state but i mean he managed to completely escape any persecution from from Charles II. Was that luck or was it just that everybody just thought, well, he's not that important? I think it was the latter. And also, I mean, Charles II, for the most part, only really went after the uh, the regicides and the people who'd actually signed his He, he only before. hung, drew and quarter a few people. A few, exactly. <laughs> um, now, I, I hate to throw a kind of what if at a proper professional historian yeah. to deal in these things. And I must, I must say, I'm very glad that I don't have an Oxbridge assessor breathing down my neck <laughs> and, and marking up my uh, my amateur uh, assessments of our monarchs through this series. But, uh, but, you know, if Cromwell had lived longer or Richard had been more like his father, do you think that this new state of affairs would have held? I mean, how, how finely balanced was it between people who just said, can't we just get... The monarchy back and those who are saying no everything should change forever i mean i actually think it's a really interesting question there's a bit of a kind of 
trope i suppose which is that when the restoration happens in 1660 everyone's absolutely delighted and you know we can we can have parties again we can have christmas mm-hmm. again and music and things like that and and you know the 1650s have been completely dour and and humorless and, and everything like that and it's a, it's a massive exaggeration um it is quite clear that in may 1660 there is a lot of goodwill towards the rest- restored monarchy I, I don't think we can get away from that i mean there are a few people who sort of you know say yeah, Cromwell's much better, blah, blah, blah. Why, why are we being ruled by a Scotsman again? This is terrible kind of thing. Um, but um, A Frenchified Scotsman. At a Frenchified, <laughs> even worse, even worse if you're a sort of John Bull character. There's a lot of people who are very, very keen on, on the new monarchy, at least for a certain amount of time. Um, but we do have to understand that in the context of the absolute chaos that happens for a couple of years after Oliver Cromwell died. I mean, the signs are that by the time Cromwell has kind of consolidated power by about 1658, things are sort of ticking along. Um, The royalists are coming back. They're not really being persecuted uh, in any great way. The religious groups which have sprung up uh, during the revolution are finding more more toleration. um, And you know, possibly more important than anything else, um, the you know the British state is by that point quite successful on the international stage. And when the the regicide first happened in 1649, all these kind of European powers say, "Oh, that's horrible! Look at what the English have done! Aren't they savages?" Kind of thing. And then the English get their affairs in order and take control over the whole archipelago, and suddenly they're really, really powerful. And then you have got the French and the Spanish coming along and saying. You know, all those horrible things we said about you, we didn't really mean it. And actually, we'd quite like you on our side when we've got to fight the other uh, lot. So by the end of the 1650s, there's a very, very successful kind of foreign policy. It's becoming a very powerful state. So, yeah, I, I, I tend to be quite sort of quite optimistic about the potential for survival for the Cromwellian Republic, at least, if not the sort of proper republic. Your book's called A New History of Revolutionary England. Could it also have been called A Short History? Because, I mean, it seems to me that we don't really like revolutions in this country. It's not part of our temperament. I mean, it's interesting because you're saying that the successes that came out of the revolution were ultimately stability, a well-run parliament and a strong economy. Now, I suppose in some ways, that's what you want from a revolution. But there were a lot of people who wanted it to go further, weren't they? I mean, who wanted votes for all, not just the landowners. And for a moment there, it looked like everything might be turned upside down. But Cromwell suppressed all of that. And actually, it seems to me that instead of giving the people more freedom, he simply gave them a whole new set of Puritan rules. Yes, and um, Oliver Cromwell has a very kind of strange role in in 1647, and, and this is when this is that moment when the civil war is over. There's uh, or the first civil war is over. There's discussion about the relationship between Parliament and the King, but as part of that, you get this kind of big explosion in um, wider constitutional discussions and you get radical groups like the levelers um, who uh, are arguing for well some of them are arguing for universal manhood suffrage um, some of them are arguing for um, a sort of more restricted form of manhood suffrage a very very small number are arguing for uh, women having the vote but, but that's <laughs> a very, very sadly a very very small number they sort of force themselves on the army in a sense they make these contacts in the army and some of the army soldiers who are people who are you know from quite ordinary backgrounds um, who had fought this this war that they thought where they were fighting for you know for, for whatever they thought they were fighting for um and um they 
thought, well, actually, this sounds like a terribly good idea. I would quite like to have a vote, actually. You know, I've, I've, I've ventured my blood for this cause and I'd like to have a day. In order to sort of either to capture that spirit or, or to kind of to, to argue it down, perhaps, um, Cromwell and the leader of the army, Sir Thomas Fairfax, basically invite levellers to, to discuss the future of the Constitution in, uh, in Putney, of all places. Um, and you get this kind of incredible... Uh, debate and by a, one of these sort of wonderful historical happy circumstances um, the person who was writing down the debates actually kept the record and the records ended up being squirreled away in this Oxford college until they were discovered by a historian in the late 19th century who must have thought wow you know what have I got here um, and you you get uh, you know you get people saying well you know um, we should have manhood suffrage we should um, put the king on trial very kind of radical stuff um, but eventually it doesn't come to anything and and a large part of the reason it doesn't come to anything is because Oliver Cromwell closes it down what happens in 1647 is that Charles I escapes from captivity there's always been a bit of a suggestion that Cromwell might have have you know mm. connived at that um, and then the army have to close ranks literally um, to then fight another civil war um, and then after that the the agenda is dominated by what to do with Charles Stuart because he has shown that he cannot be trusted um, and again Cromwell is able with his son-in-law Henry Ireton to sort of get some of that energy some of that leveler energy towards what he thinks is the most important radical um, solution at that point, which is to abolish the monarchy and to uh, and to put the king on trial, but that sort of democratic side of things is is basically lost. He doesn't see it as that important, and in fact, he sees it as dangerous. Um, and that then ends with this famous mutiny in the army, which ends at Burford um, in Cotswolds, where Cromwell basically kind of you know fights down the levellers and has a couple of them shot. If someone else more radical had been in 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 charge of the army at that point, or had been in Cromwell's position in the army, because he wasn't actually the leader of the army yet. Um, then maybe there would have been a sort of more democratic revolution, but it wasn't to be. It was, it, you know, Cromwell was the forceful guy on the um, on the scene, and and he, and his priorities were elsewhere. Basically, did they put together a set of rules on how the protectorate worked and how that was going to go forward? You know, to say, right, we're getting rid of the monarch. What is the alternative? Was the protector going to be voted on, or, or ha did they have a system? Uh, they definitely had a system. So what happened initially is that there was a sort of hangover from the older constitution in that the remnants in the House of Commons, because the House of Commons was purged December the 6th, 1648, by soldiers from the New Model Army. Cromwell probably wasn't directly involved, but he was certainly sort of aware of what was going on. It was Henry Ireton who was, who was doing it. Um, and that left a sort of what, what they called a rump um, in the commons of MPs who were willing to put the king on trial. They then discovered that the House of Lords, I mean, there was about three lords who were regularly sitting at that point, but they were not willing to uh, agree to the trial. So it's, so the commons basically said, well, fine, we, we will abolish the House of Lords. And eventually they, um, they abolished the House of Lords around about the same time that they abolished the monarchy. So that leaves the House of Commons. Um, and for three and a half years, the House of Commons runs the government. They have a council of state which acts as the executive who are picked by the House of um, Commons. And you have essentially a republican form of government. But what they can't settle is they can't settle the next set of elections. They know that parliament has been sitting for ages and they're long overdue an election 
um, and we all know that feeling. Um, and, but they can't decide on on how it's going to work. Who's going to have the vote? Um, most importantly, how are they going to make sure loads of royalists don't get elected? Um, and in the end, it's because of that debate that Cromwell loses patience with the House of Commons and then gets a group of his soldiers and then marches them in and then dissolves it. Uh, and that's when you get the um, the first kind of move towards Cromwellian government. Now, Cromwell being Cromwell, he doesn't immediately decide, right, okay, I'm going to take, th these guys are hopeless, I'm going to I'm going to impose my own uh, rule because I'm the only one who's sensible enough to do it. He actually has this kind of absolutely uh, daft idea, really. Let's be honest. I know the historian is not supposed to say that, but it was pretty daft. You can say what you like on well, that show. <laughs> exactly. Um, of having an assembly of so-called saints. Oh, yes. These were people yes. who were sort of religious and, uh, and supportive. And it was supposed to be based on a kind of biblical precedent. The army, basically, and you know, some of the local um, churches picked people. Um, who would represent them in Parliament. But of course, they all just ended up arguing. And the first thing they argued about was whether they were a Parliament. Um, and <laughs> then they ended up arguing about law reform. They argued about um, church reform. Um, and in the end, what happened was there was, you know, there were two factions in this nominated assembly or bare bones Parliament, as it comes to be called, named after one of its members, praise God, barebone. Um, there are two factions. There were sort of conservatives and radicals, as the, there often are in these these parliaments and and what happened was that the conservatives basically got up early came in while the radicals were still praying uh and uh, voted to dissolve and hand power back to the crop i'm sorry jonathan but this does not sound like a system at all to me <laughs> no but, you said oh there was a system well, it sounds like yeah, chaos yeah. that nobody really knew what they were doing <laughs> but then then right this is where the system comes in in order to protect people from the tyranny of parliament, they suggested that basically there should be a, a written constitution, essentially. Um, and that's what was tried next. The, the, um, uh, one of the soldiers in Cromwell's army, a guy called John Lambert, who's this really interesting guy, actually from the Yorkshire Dales, um, a very successful commander, um, not a man of any, dis any not notable religious convictions. He seems to just get on with everyone. And he's most famous at the time for having, for being a really keen gardener. And his wife was very kind of, you know, fashionably dressed. So he's a really kind of interesting guy. Um, and, uh, but he was also a very, very sophisticated political thinker. Um, and he basically came to Cromwell and says, look, I've got, I've written down what I think the constitution should be. Um, good news, you're the top guy. We're going to bring back a single person <laughs> and it is going to be you. Um, bad news is regular parliaments uh, and also um, certain protections for religious minorities. Not everyone, not Catholics, for example, um, but, uh, but Christians who were willing to sort of live without bishops were to be tolerated. By our standards, of course, it was still pretty restrictive. But by the standards of the 17th century, this is a very, very um, tolerant constitution. And, and Cromwell uh, agreed to it. And that's what the basic rules of the protectorate would be. Um, the trouble is that for Parliament, it had been created by this army guy and not a particularly significant mm. one, just this bloke from Yorkshire who, you know, his only significant contribution had been that he'd won a few battles. Yeah, and maybe won a biggest marrow competition at the local church fair. And this was horrible, you know. This was not how things were done. <laughs> this was, you know, it, sovereignty doesn't come from, from you know, Yorkshire soldiers dishing out constitutions. That's just, that's just you know, 
highly irregular. Um, and so they spent the next sort of three years arguing against it. And, Crom- and that's why Cromwell ended up having such um, fractious relationships with his parliament. But there still doesn't seem to be in there. And this goes back to when Oliver passed on to Richard, this matter of the one top dog is going to be resolved and how that's going to work in the future. No, it was all left very, um, all left very unsaid. Uh, Mm. It's almost like, you know, sort of classic politician thing, really, is it's a a tricky issue. Let's just leave it, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Got other things to deal with. Now, I have to confess, I really struggle to get my head around all of this, all the different political machinations and also the religious machinations, the bewildering variety of different sects and religious movements. And to tell you the truth, I'm still trying to come to terms with what on earth Presbyterianism is. (laughs) But let's not get into that now. I mean, it's an immensely complicated uh, religious landscape in a way that I think we find very, very hard to grasp looking at it from the 21st century. And I think one of the ways that we have approached that is say, well, you know, no one really knows, no one really cares about it at the time. It's just these... Oxbridge academics arguing that the far end of a fart, basically, um, and uh, and no one in you know in the parishes actually cares. But one of the really intriguing things about the Republic is that there is you know there are these kind of real grassroots religious movements, which suggests to me um, that a lot of ordinary people actually do have really interesting takes on this kind of thing and you know you, you look at movements like the quakers which are very much sort of you know northern peasants basically who are saying well actually I, do you know what I'm, I'm not really up for this church hierarchy thing i think i think god is in all of us and men and women as well and children i think we're just going to sit around and, and wait for inspiration it's just quite democratic really um mm. but the i mean the initial I mean, this is another one of these kind of really one of these big sort of historiographical questions, which is, the, is it all fundamentally about religion or is it about constitutional issues? And I think, um, funnily enough, in recent years, there's been a sort of move towards thinking of the civil wars as basically being about religion. You've got, on the one hand, you've got the royalists who like the Book of Common Prayer, they like bishops. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got the parliamentarians who are Puritan, um, they don't like bishops very much. Um, and uh, and then eventually they become more um, uh, inspired by independency, which is the idea that everyone sort of gets together and forms their own churches. Mm. Um, and I think that that is obviously it's a, a big part of it. But there's there's so much diversity, even at the beginning, you know, e- e- even in 1641, um, someone like Oliver Cromwell, for example, he's quite hard to pin down what his religious views are in 1641. He's, he's at the sort of radical end of the parliamentarian spectrum. But is he is he a, does he support the abolition of, of bishops? It's not quite clear. One way of kind of simplifying it a little bit um, is to think about top down versus bottom up um, in the sense that the bishops and Presbyterianism, which comes after it, are both top down disciplinary systems of church government where um, essentially, um, you know, there are very strict rules. Now, there's different people making the rules and there's a question of whether there's bishops or not. But it it is still quite strict. It's quite um, restricted. um, There's not much room for toleration. Whereas on the other hand, you've got the sort of more bottom-up approach where people gather to make their own churches or they separate from the Church of England completely. Um, and there you've got a much more disorganised, much more um, fluid and, and, and much more diverse religious landscape. And in a sense, Cromwell ends up being the kind of poster boy for that, for that last approach, um, a more sort of um, a more permissive religious uh, settlement. 
But even for Cromwell and his supporters, the Quakers become too much uh, at, at times. I mean, partly because, you know, Quakers these days are, are, are more sort of, you know, famously pacifist, whereas in the early days they were very militant. Um, they would sort of, you know, burst into churches and start haranguing the, the minister and things like that. Um, but yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> and it gets even more complicated for me trying to keep up with exactly what's going on in Scotland, what the Scottish want and why they keep changing sides. One moment they're supporting Charles and the next they're supporting Cromwell. I mean, does it basically just come down to the fact that they wanted to get rid of bishops and whoever in England agreed to that, they would side with? Scotland had a very radical um, reformation um, back in the 15, right. uh, in the late 16th century. And one of the things that causes it to kick off in 1638 um, is that the Scottish Parliament unilaterally abolishes bishops in Scotland. So and Charles I says, well, you can't do that. Sorry, I'm going to fight a war with you, which he then loses. And, and there's a very, very strong group within Scotland which wants to not only make sure that the Scottish bishops are abolished and don't come back but also because they feel safer if England has a similarly advanced form of Protestantism they want England to see the light as well and get rid of their bishops. So originally Parliament agrees to go along with it and they say they'll ban bishops because the Scots are threatening from the north. Is that roughly what happened? Well in Parliament they're sort of saying let's abolish the bishops let's do that. They do for a bit but they do it largely because they are being told to by the Scots. Uh, and at that point, they hadn't, you know, settled a treaty. Once the Scots pack up and go home, um, the <laughs> the parliamentarians actually start saying, "Well, do you know what? We, it was quite a good idea, but we'll 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 just leave that for a bit and constitute uh, and 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 focus on other things." Um, and that again is what sort of comes in um, in 1648 because the in order to get Scottish support, Charles the First. Um, basically sort of promises to um, uh, abolish uh, bishops for a period um, and then they they send an army so um, that's almost one of the most consistent things really is the Scottish belief that actually <laughs> bishops are a bad thing but um, the English think that bishops are essentially a good thing in England I think as long as the bishops basically just don't become too annoying most people are quite happy to allow them to continue um it's, there's only a few sort of radicals who are really sort of, you know, this is the pressing issue, you know, whether or not there should be bishops and we must get rid of them because they are, you know, they are the spawn of Satan kind of thing. That's what people say. So when Charles II is trying to get their support and get the throne back, are they trying to get him to agree to the same thing? Is it Does it basically come down to the bishops, as it were? I think for a lot of Scottish um, uh, politicians, it does. That's that's the that's the key thing. Um there's probably there's probably also a bit of a sense of so one one of the crucial ways to understand the conflicts across the whole of you know um, the of archipelago in the middle of the 17th century is it's not necessarily what you're for it's what you're against um, the, yes. the royalists really hate Puritans and they hate Democrats um, they they don't like this idea that 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 power comes from the people now the parliamentarians aren't really democrats um but the royalists hate them for being democrats um on the other hand the royalists aren't catholics but the parliamentarians accuse them of being catholics they're anti-catholic um mm. so a lot of it's about what you're what you're against yeah so we and we now have this business of the first anglo-dutch war where the english decided they were against the dutch despite the dutch being in many ways 
people most similar to the English, I've always thought, in that they were a Protestant nation, they were a seafaring nation, they were a trading nation. I, I mean, was this anything more than a trade war? Yeah, I mean, I think trade is really, really important. Um, it, you know, Britain at this point is actually starting to become pretty wealthy from international trade and um, the Dutch are the main rivals. So there's, there's definitely an element of that. Um, the other thing is that, I mean, we've just spent... We just spent a while talking about the complexities of, of British politics, and I don't want to <laughs> say what <laughs> explanation. <laughs> the other thing is that the, the the British Republic wants to intervene in Dutch politics, and they want to make sure that the the Orange family um, don't become too powerful right. in the Netherlands because they're related to the Stuarts. Um, okay. So, so there is an element of that as well. But then Charles II um, seems to have taken against the Oranges as well, even though yes. it was his own family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think maybe trade is at the root of a, 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 an awful lot of it. Um, I mean, what, you know, one doesn't like to be cynical, but money, I think, was quite important. There's also an argument that the English Puritans basically see the Dutch as being slightly reprobate because they've... Um, adopted all this kind of all these trappings of wealth because of course the, the Netherlands is incredibly wealthy at this mm. point wealthier than, than England is um, so they're sort of looking at them and going well you know <laughs> look, look at these degenerates with all their paintings and and you know and, and beer and everything so there's there's an argument that that's part of it but um, I, I you know I don't I don't want to be that sort of cynical historian but I think trade is is crucial here okay well we'll stick with that <laughs> I'm sure many historians have written many, many thick books about the Anglo-Dutch wars, oh, yes. which if I live long enough, I'll get around to one day. <laughs> well, that that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for helping me to make sense of this. Um, but just to finally to sum up Cromwell, because he is this such a controversial figure. It, I mean, is there a general consensus among historians today about whether he was a good thing or a bad thing, all things considered. <laughs> I think most people think he's a bad thing, but they just have very different reasons for it. I mean, you know, for yeah. example, um, you know, Irish, um, you know, people looking at it from an Irish perspective have fairly obvious reasons to, to think that he's a yes. bad thing. Although, on the other hand, you know, for the English, it's quite convenient to sort of you know, parcel up centuries of English colonialism in Ireland and say, oh, you know, it was mainly just this guy, whereas actually he's he is, yes. um, uh, he's indicative of a much broader... Um, well, he sort of has become the representation of everything wrong that England has done. Exactly. In and and in, a, in a sense, that's fine. But I think... Um, I think you also have to remember that he was representative of English attitudes um, and it's it's not quite clear that things would have been different if someone else had been put in that position. I think he was, you know, he, as I say, he represented English colonial and, and frankly racist mindsets towards the Irish in this period. He was just the one who was able to, you know, put those into, into action. Um, then, of course, you've got the sort of royalist perspective. It's quite interesting, actually, I, I, I think, you, you know, if you look at the way people looked at this period in the 19th century and, um, you know, you very much see the sort of parliamentarians as, as, as fundamentally right, you know, right but repulsive if you read 1066 and all that um, whereas i think now there's been a bit more of a sort of royalist contingent these days who sort of see um see cromwell as this kind of you know oikish puritan i think the the interpretation of the period as being fundamentally about religion has helped that because whilst 
in the 21st century, I think we can look at the constitutional ideas of the parliamentarians and say, actually, probably we don't really want to go back to an absolutist monarchy on balance, um, whereas also we quite like Christmas, you know. And then, of course, there's the Cromwell in the English radical tradition, the, the left wing um, tradition, where he's the one who sells out the levelers um, and he's the one who crushes right. the, the real potential for revolutionary change that there was in the middle of the 17th century and had it not been for him at, at sort of you know at Burford and places like that then there was a genuine possibility of a you know a proper revolution so yeah so he's a man who has many enemies from many different angles I think so yeah a lot of people do seem to say that you know he was a possibly a, a bad thing as it were but there was a necessary reset and it was a way of dismantling everything and saying, OK, what's the best way to put this back together? And it, and it, it did make people think about the monarchy yeah. and how it worked. And it, and it, the other counterfactual is what would England look like if Charles I had won the Civil War, if he'd won the Battle of Naseby? Mm. The, the people advising him are quite radically royalist. You know, they really do want to smash Parliament and create absolutist mm. uh, monarchy and then you're looking at the possibility of um you know england and the british isles going down a, a more kind of french style path um in the, in the late 17th and 18th century and, and i think in a sense that's that's a, a a more worrying proposition really because you know you saw what happened in france um it was mm. very, uh, yes it might have led to an yeah. even worse revolution yeah, or even more violent revolution well, thank you very much, Jonathan. And uh, remind listeners to, if they want to find out a lot more about this, to read your book, Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England. Thank you. You're more than welcome. It's good fun. So that was Dr. Jonathan Healy. Join me on the next episode when we go from revolution to reformation, from Oliver Cromwell dressed in black to Charles II with his frippery, foppery, finery and fornication his elaborate wigs, his pencil moustache and his 17 mistresses. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Steve was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Steve, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.